the word of our Lord from Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Well, them's fighting words. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed even to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are perfect, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now, oft, and, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Father, we pray that You would bless the reading of your holy word. Bless it to our hearts. Bless it to our minds. Bless it to our very selves. 
We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. What is the flesh? When Paul speaks here in these first few verses of chapter 3 about the flesh, he is not talking about the physical body. He's not talking about mere physicality. He's not talking about this body. He will later talk about the flesh of this body being glorified in the resurrection. But here in these first few verses, he's speaking of the flesh as that which I'm able to do in my own will. It is the spirit of the flesh or the the mind of the flesh that within us which says, I can do what I want. And I am able to do for myself whatever I please. And attain for myself whatever I desire. The will is the source of the problem of sin. Sin is about self-will. It is about our insistence upon wanting what we want and having what we want. It is about my way. If you think back to Genesis chapter 3, the temptation by the serpent of Eve, that was his great appeal to her. Look at this. It looks nice. It looks like something that ought to bring you some some sense of, of joy and happiness. And who is God to say you can't have it? Don't you want it? Can't you just reach out and grab it? The will is the source of the problem of sin. Self-will is about our wish to be our own maker. We want to be able to discover ourselves and to define ourselves. In our heart of hearts, we all want to be self-made men. Not just successful, but self-defining, self-making men. We want what we want and we want to have what we want. And we want to shape reality for ourselves. Paul would encourage us to follow his example. Not lifting himself up, but simply being candid about what the Lord Jesus has done in his own life. He says that he puts no confidence in the flesh. In other words, he puts no confidence and and invites us to put no confidence in what we are able to do in and of ourselves. 
Because in the end, what you and I are able to accomplish in our own strength will pass away. It will become nothing. It will be vanity of all vanities. Just a mere vapor. Just a mere breath that's passing away. But Paul would have us to live another way. May knowing Christ be the greatest longing and supreme desire of our lives. Be ready to lose everything for the sake of Jesus, Paul would tell us. Whether by persecution and having it taken from you or by sacrifice by having it be required of you. You know, Jesus doesn't tell everyone, go sell all that you have and give the earnings to the poor, then come and follow me. He doesn't tell everyone that. But according to the Gospels, He did tell at least one man that. Unfortunately, the rich young ruler walked away sad because he had quite a bit that he wasn't willing to sacrifice. That he wasn't willing to let go of. Paul was willing to lose all that he knew of himself even to gain Christ. He was willing to to surrender his social identity, even his political identity, his cultural identity. And above all things, Paul had the, the, the gall to be willing to even sacrifice his ethnic identity. Because Paul understood that his only true and lasting identity was in Christ alone. It is Jesus who made Paul the greatest saint, the great saint of the New Testament church. I don't want to say greatest because you know, I feel like maybe I'm picking on the other guys, leaving them out and gals. But it was Jesus who transformed Paul from a, a self-made and, and grasping person into the one that we admire and the one who spent himself for the sake of the church. The one who found himself imprisoned for his faith. The one who found himself losing everything willingly, even gladly, for the sake of the fledgling church of the New Testament. Be ready to lose everything for the sake of Jesus. Go ahead and consider them lost. Count them as nothing as Paul did. Lindsay always reminds me because I get very frustrated when you know things around the house get tore up and it, it happens. And she always reminds me, look, when we get something, I already consider it to have been gone. I already consider it broken. And so, hey, if we get you know a couple of weeks out of the thing, that's a bonus. It's kind of like a Zen approach. Consider it lost. Consider it broken. It's going to be eventually.
the heart. The control center is the key. In the end, every man gets what he truly wants. C.S. Lewis said there are really only two types of people. Those who look to God and say, Thy will be done. And those to whom God will finally look and say, Thy will be done. But in the end, we all get what we truly want. You see, the problem is in our will. Like a good parent, God loves us so much that despite the pain, despite our fighting, He is willing to break our wills for the sake of our best interest. So let me ask you a very spiritually intimate question. What do you really want? What is it that you are willing to sacrifice everything for? Because it's something. There's something that each and every one of us is willing to sacrifice everything for. To not be willing to sacrifice everything for something is despair. Whatever it is that you hold in your hands, don't grasp it. Hold it very loosely. Again, back to the rich young ruler. What Jesus knew about him was what he held tightly in his hands. That which was in the center of his heart. That which he desired more than anything. And that for which he was willing to lose everything. Whatever it is that consumes your heart controls your destiny. That which takes up the center. That which is your greatest longing and your supreme desire. May knowing Christ be the destination toward which we strive. Paul says something very curious in verses 12 and 15. He picks up a thought in 12 and he'll tease it out for a moment and then he will kind of build upon it or respond to it in verse 15. And 
interestingly enough, despite what the um, what Paul actually wrote, we our our translations try to soften what Paul says here. Paul is speaking of the resurrection of the body. Notice how he ends verses the thought in verses nine, ten, and eleven. He he says that his prime desire, the one thing he wants, that one thing that takes up the core of his being, he says, is to be found in Jesus. Not having any of his own righteousness by keeping the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's key. And the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed even to his death. He wants to know Jesus so intimately that he is able to suffer with Jesus. To be conformed to the death of Jesus so that he might know the power of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Then he says, if by any means, if at all possible, if God would grant it to me that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It is with that in mind that Paul then says, not that I have already attained, Paul says, look, I haven't died yet. I can't have been resurrected yet. And so I'm not yet what I will become. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected in that sense of being raised from the dead. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I'm grasping for that which Christ has grasped me. Paul then says in verse 15, but because of this striving, this forgetting of the past and pressing on into the future today of what God has for us, he says, therefore let us, as many as are perfect, It's the same exact word. Let us, as many as are perfect, to the sense that we can be perfect now. Not resurrected perfect. Not yet being what we shall become after death. But perfect to some extent. Perfect in some sense. Paul here is not talking about mere maturity. You wouldn't say that a grown man who doesn't know how to treat his spouse and doesn't know how to honor his commitments. Doesn't know how to cook dinner for himself. Amen? You wouldn't say he's perfect. You would say, okay, he's grown up, but he's still a child. So Paul here is not talking about just natural progression in the Christian life where we mature, we we learn a little more, we grow a little more, we grow up a bit. He's talking about something that is fundamentally different in in his heart. Something that is fundamentally different in his will, that will that used to grasp. 
that will that used to demand and insist upon its own way. He's talking about what Jesus was talking about in the Gospels. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, look, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's not quoting the Old Testament there. He's quoting the conventional wisdom. And it's always been the conventional wisdom. 2,000 years ago when Jesus was teaching on that mountain, 2,000 years later today, the conventional wisdom is you care for those who care for you and those who stick it to you, you stick it to them. But Jesus said, I tell you, love even your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. And perhaps even hardest, pray for those who spitefully use you. You see, none of us, none of us as we are controlled by self-will like getting used. Just me being honest here, feeling like you're getting used is one of the worst feelings I know. It is demoralizing. It is degrading. And we don't like it. But Jesus then says, yeah, that's right. I'm calling you to even love your enemies. Those who mistreat you. Those who walk all over you. Those who try to hurt you. Love them. And then he says, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus there is not talking about knowing all things. He's not talking about having all power. He's not talking about having the, resur- the, the power to raise the dead. He's talking about a heart that is perfect, a heart that is motivated only by love. He's talking about purity of heart. That which the Old Testament prophets promised Israel would be available to them. He's talking about being what God made you to be and expects you to be now. And it's not a flawless type of perfection. It's not a perfection that's untempted and a perfection that can't fall. It's a perfection where our heart's chief desire and chief motivation is governed by the love of God and the love of our neighbor. A heart that is turned outward, not inward. A will that is giving, not a will that is grasping. And for this to be ours, this that Paul says, as many of us as are perfect, as many of us who are living in the fullness of what God has for us today, not that we've been raised from the dead yet, but we are living in the reality that Jesus offers us now, the fullness of it, 
It'll require us to no longer be ruled and controlled by sin and self. A work of cleansing in our hearts by faith in Him. Lord, I am broken and I am empty and I need You to fill me. I need You to mend me. I need You to clean me up. And it will require it will require God then filling us with His love so that we might then be able to love Him fully as Jesus said was the, the, the greatest of the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. So that we might then be able to also love our neighbors as ourselves. Including our enemies. God wants us to be so filled and so captivated by His love. That we love Him and we love others unreservedly. He can fill us with that kind of love. He can break our self-will and make it to where He is our only desire and make it to where knowing Him is the only thing, the only destination toward which we strive in life. So Paul invites us. He says, join in following my example. Paul's not being conceited here. He's not being arrogant here. He is simply recognizing how broken he was and how God has healed him. Why is this cause for rejoicing? Paul, throughout his letter to the Philippians, has been inviting the Philippians in every single chapter, multiple times in every single chapter, rejoice. Rejoice. Join with me in rejoicing. I want to rejoice with you, Paul says. Why is this sort of intimate knowledge of God and 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 brokenness of our wills before Him calls for rejoicing? Well, because Jesus' victory over sin and death is great enough to enable us in Him to be victorious over the sin and death in our own lives. He can break a will. He can transform a heart. He can renew a mind. And He calls us to pursue Him relentlessly. To press on relentlessly after Him. He can set us free from the bondage of self-will. 
it's sometimes easier to see self-will in others than it is in ourselves. We see when someone is selfish. We see when someone just wants what they want and they don't care what it takes. But it's actually a good and refreshing thing when we come to the end of ourselves and we begin to see self-will in all of its nastiness, in all of its brokenness, in all of its darkness, and in all of its death in ourselves. Because it's at that point that we can look to Jesus and say, Lord, I am broken. I have become like a black hole and I just suck things into myself and destroy them. Set me free. May our prayer be that of St. Augustine. In his confessions, he prayed, O God, thou hast made us for thyself, and restless remain our hearts till they find their rest in thee. May our prayer be, Lord, give me rest in you. Bring me to the end of myself. Break me of my self-will. And may all of who I am be consumed by your love. Let's pray.